I just want everybody to have access to a lot of the knowledge and information that comes out of this place. You know, Matt, from like interviewing so many folks and being the dean for research, that there's so much compelling work in so many different areas coming out of our college. And I would love for, you know, high school teachers to have access to that and uh, moms and dads to have access to that and high school seniors to to better understand who they're going to be interacting with. Welcome to Health and Human Science Matters, a podcast by Colorado State University's College of Health and Human Sciences. I'm your co-host and digital media strategist, Avery Martin. And I'm Matt Hickey, Associate Dean for Research and Graduate Studies. In our college, we make it our mission to optimize human health and well-being through discovery and innovation. Don't just take our word for it. Each episode, we sit down with people who fulfill that mission, our college faculty and staff. And today, we're lucky enough to have a friend and colleague from social work, Dr. Paula Yuma. Paula, welcome. We're so glad you could come and spend a little bit of time with us. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, we're excited to have you. We've been enjoying these conversations so much. We were just talking about this a little bit that, uh, you know, we we can get so busy in any profession. I think the academy is like this where we, we sort of have tunnel vision and sometimes to be able to pull a curtain down and look across the college that we work in and say, ooh, there's somebody who I've sat in meetings with, but I didn't know this about their scholarship or equally important, you know, what, what do you do for fun? <laughs> what are the things that interest you, right? So we're interested in pursuing both of those today. And I'm going to start with the big questions that you pursue as a scholar, if, mm. if you're willing to share some reflections on that. Yeah, sure. Well, most of my, uh, my research and my applied uh, community work is really around a grand challenge. The social work has 13 grand challenges that we've agreed as a field are really the priorities for um, human health and well-being. And uh, so the one I focused on is called Closing the Health Gap. And it's kind of uh, two parts. It really works on the disparities that are created by lots of structures in our society that mean not everyone has equal access to human health. Um, And then the other part is really about access to care in communities. So knowing that we have disparate levels of health driven by uh, structural factors. Um, We also have, once people have these health conditions, we also have difficulty getting them into uh, appropriate and timely care uh, where they trust the providers and feel like they can get what they need. So my close the health gap uh, focus is also kind of at the intersection of public health and social work. And so I always kind of joke that I'm adopted by social work because I have a master's in public health. I've never been a practicing social worker. Um, I did practice as a health educator and a policy advocate for many years, and then came back and got my PhD at a school of social work, which had a lot of public health overlap. So I'm kind of this uh, public health transplant that has been adopted and accepted by social work, for which I'm very grateful. (laughs) I suspect they are as well. I think you probably bring a perspective that, that, uh, you know, by virtue of the academic training, may not be widely shared. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things about our college is the uh, interdisciplinary approach we take to these big, wicked problems in our society. And we certainly have that in the School of Social Work and the areas where I'm not an expert, like in clinical uh, interventions or counseling kinds of interventions, my colleagues um, totally rock it out there. So I think we all fit pretty well together. And it's fun to be in an environment where you can celebrate other people's successes, including those opportunities when we can celebrate our own as well. But it's fun to say, wow, look, look, look. It's one of my favorite parts about this job is to 
to celebrate scholarly successes for sure. Mm -hmm. So 13 grand challenges, and one of those emerging on your radar screen is, is something that you have a passion and interest you want to pursue. Talk to us a little bit about among the 13, how, how was it that that one was centered for you as a mission focus area? Yeah, well, uh, luckily those developed after I was already kind of established in my work. So they've been around, I'm going to guesstimate about seven years now. Okay. Um, but the public health world has had um, the healthy people priorities going for uh, several decades now. And those have always concerned health equity um, access to healthcare, the kinds of things that I work on. So um, I've always been able to find some alignment with these national priorities uh, in my work. That's yeah. great. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your journey. How did you end up here as a member of the academy? We'll talk yeah. about the specifics of here at CSU later mm -hmm. on, but I'm interested in significant moments, touchstones, mentors, et cetera, because we're... Yeah. You know, we are hoping many of our, uh, our students or prospective students will listen to this and have those aha moments of I can relate to that and maybe I can do this too kind of scenario. Yeah, so. well, I hope they do too. This is a story I always um, share if I'm invited to talk to our uh, freshman or sophomore students about uh, professional pathways. But I was, you know, very fortunate to get to go to college. I I had um, great support from my parents growing up. They really prioritized education, but hadn't been able to um, earn their college degrees themselves. And I uh, went to the University of Texas as an undergrad, and I thought I wanted to be an athletic trainer. Okay. So I majored in kinesiology and worked as a student athletic trainer uh -huh. for four years. So I actually lettered in football, and I lettered <laughs> in women's basketball and men's tennis. Wow. And it was a great place to be, but I majored in completely the wrong thing. Like kinesiology drew on none of my strengths. Mm. Um, there's a lot of sort of uh, like there is in the medical field, a lot of memorization, a lot of anatomy, mm. and all of those things served me well later, mm -hmm. but didn't ignite any curiosity, any passion on my side. I was so tired of it by the time I graduated. <laughs> I just really never wanted to tape another ankle. <laughs> um, so because I'd majored in completely the wrong thing, I realized um, either I'm going to have to go work in this field or I need to go to graduate school. And uh, the women's basketball coach at UT, Jody Conrad, put me up for a graduate school scholarship for um, that was specific for like people who'd been trainers or managers. And it wasn't very much, but just the idea that Jody Conrad, like one of the winningest coaches of women's basketball, thought that I should go to graduate school was like enough to make me think I should go to graduate school. Indeed. Yeah, so I um, applied to a relatively new school at the time. They're very established now. Um, and this was viewed as, you know, a high degree of traitorship by my fellow Longhorns. <laughs> but I went to do my master's in public health at Texas A&M, oh, sure. which had a school of rural public health at the time. Fine. Now they've become more general. They're just a regular school of public health, but they were really focused on rural issues at the time. And I just fell in love with public health. Like I had uh, such great professors. I was totally on board with the idea of um, preventing uh, things from happening rather than treating them after the fact. Um, I really liked uh, learning about population health approaches and doing uh, community health assessments that I got to be part of in my master's program. So um, that's really what, you know, 
where I found my heart was aligned with work. Thank yeah. goodness. Mm -hmm. T tell me how public health at that stage of your development got on your radar screen. Kenise was not it. Oh, right. Great. You yeah. had Coach Conrad kind of, you know, nudge you and thank goodness for those things. But yeah. of all the places you could have gone in principle, really anywhere, mm -hmm. how did public health emerge? Yeah. Well, when I was a, a trainer, um, as I thought about what to do after graduation, I realized, you know, I love helping people and I like uh, helping people have a good quality of life. But where I am now, there's help lined up down the hallway, like there's so many people here to help athletes. Yeah. Um, and I'd much rather be helping in a place where there's not people lined up down the hallway. So public health seemed like a place where I could kind of get those skills. Um, and I was in more of a, an area of public health that does overlap pretty closely with social work, which was in uh, social and behavioral health. And sure. so I learned a lot about um, health education strategies, theories of behavior change, just all super interesting stuff. And I also got to do some really cool things as a graduate student. I don't know how I've gotten so lucky, but I uh, got to be part of a community health assessment um, in a seven county area of the Brazos Valley that the school was partnered uh, with local governments to run. Mm. And I got to do things like uh, go to cafes at six o'clock in the morning and have dinner um, have coffee, excuse me, with um, the opposite of dinner very early in the morning, <laughs> have coffee with, um, you know, retired folks and just hear what they thought about their communities. And I got to ride along with an undercover police officer wow. and wow. see where all the good spots to buy drugs were. Um, got My to do goodness. all kinds of really neat things as part of that community yeah. needs assessment. Oh, that's awesome. What a cool experience. Yeah. yeah, it really was. I, like I said, I've been really very fortunate. So formative influences in the MPH program. Now we're moving to this next stage. And, and you know, were there particular times, moments, events there that led you to the, I want to get a PhD, or was that a delayed sort of decision? Uh, that was delayed. So I, I really wanted to get out there and work with um, families. I was really fortunate to get a job in Dallas at Children's Medical Center Dallas in the injury prevention program, which is um, – trauma centers, like places that you'd go if you were in a motor vehicle crash or um, fell skiing and broke your leg or sure. something like that, they um, they have to invest in prevention for their communities. It's part of their um, the process they go through to be designated as trauma centers. And that all has to be very data-driven. They really have to demonstrate that they're taking uh, evidence-based approaches to preventing injury. And so um, the Children's Trauma Center uh, in Dallas was uh, working to be the first level one pediatric trauma center in Texas. And so they had to start a pediatric injury prevention program. And I got a job there as a health educator, which I loved. But within six months of taking that job, both my boss and the other person who worked there had gone out on maternity leave and decided um, that they weren't coming back. Oh, <laughs> so, so I was kind of the only one left. Wow. And we searched for someone to fill that position for quite a while. And finally, I went to my boss and, and said, you know, do you think I can do this job? And she said, oh, my God, I've just been waiting for you to ask that <laughs> question. Um, please do this job. And so uh, one of the the best things about that is um, that's where a, a mentor relationship really developed with the trauma surgeon that I worked closely with, mm. 
uh, Todd Maxson, um, he's now in Arkansas, but he really encouraged me to use my everything I learned in my MPH and kind of apply it to what we were doing on the prevention side. So he'd always say to me, you know, be a scientist, be a scientist. And so, oh, <laughs> um, yeah, even when I felt my heart pulled in other directions, I'd sure. go back to the data or I'd go back to my program evaluation skills or I'd go back to the literature and I'd be like, fine, Max, and I'm here <laughs> being a scientist. Um, and that's how, you know, I'd, I'd make recommendations or design our programs. Um, and I still say that to myself sometimes when I'm trying to figure something out, just be a scientist, you must. You almost yeah. hear him saying it probably, right? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the PhD, when, when did that emerge on your radar Yeah, screen? so um, our whole team from Children's Medical Center Dallas was recruited to the Children's Hospital in Austin, who also wanted to become a level one trauma center. Uh, so Dr. Maxson and uh, lots of the clinical staff and I got to move to Austin, which is great because that was my hometown. I was really excited to, to go back there. And while we were there, we started working really hard on getting a best practice child passenger safety law passed in Texas. Um, I don't know if you know this about Texas, but Texans don't really like to be told what to do. No um, kidding. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard. And uh, they really did not want to pass a law that would keep kids um, in car seats, uh, you know, to the age that was recommended and still is recommended, um, which is you know, you're in a car seat with a harness till age four or five. And then after that, you sit in a booster seat till uh, eight years of age. That's when a seat belt starts to fit. And we worked on getting this law passed for three legislative sessions, which is six years. And because the Texas Ledge only meets every two years. And the first time we made basically no progress and kind of ended up with a law that, if interpreted in a certain way, was actually worse than the one that we started with. And so the second time around, I um, worked really hard to gather data from all the children's hospitals and identify advocates who'd, you know, uh, been in crashes with their kids and um, much more organized uh, effort with some help from the like state hospital association and the pediatric association's lobbyists. Um, So much more organized, a lot of collective action. We still didn't make any progress. And so I got really frustrated and I thought, you know, we just really need better data and we just didn't have it and I didn't have the skills to analyze it. And luckily, a researcher in another part of the country um, had published a paper about the fiscal benefit of booster seat laws and how one kid in a booster seat can generate like such large cost savings to the state. So we extrapolated that data to the data that we did have, we were able to demonstrate the fiscal benefit of the booster seat law. And that's finally what got it passed in Texas. But um, yeah, yeah, thank Long you. Yeah. <laughs> I'll probably never do anything in my career again that'll save that many lives, though. I mean, just having that people look to the law for what to do. Sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, all of us kind of agreed. Um, even Dr. Maxson, who spends his days, you know, saving kids' lives, mm. like, agrees that that prevention strategy will probably have the biggest impact. Um, so, yeah, I peaked pretty early. Ah, <laughs> it's only uh, 28 or so at the time. Um, but it was, you know, it was just undeniable to me that I needed more research skills if I was really going to be good at this. And uh, we were partnered with some uh, professors who were uh, public health trained but working at the School of Social Work at UT. 
and they became uh, good friends and mentors as well. And they started bugging me about coming to do a PhD. And uh, Dr. Maxson started bugging me about getting my PhD. <laughs> and uh, again, just those nudges from, you know, uh, anybody else can make you start thinking about sure. that. But yeah, I never would have, I never would have considered that, you know, 10 years before as a child or anything like that. So yeah, I started to uh, do my PhD at UT and the School of Social Work, which is just an amazing place. You know, they're a, a top five school of social work, really big faculty, um, really incredible people. And they uh, were very encouraging all along the way. And I did something I will never encourage a student to do, which is work full-time and to your PhD full-time. Mm, but I goodness. did that for two years. And then I, yeah, I defended my dissertation proposal when I was eight months pregnant, I think. And then I realized, like, I can't work full-time and do the PhD full-time and be a parent. Uh, so that's when I stopped working at the Children's Hospital and picked up a little teaching um, at UT. Uh, after my daughter was born. Wow. That deserves yeah. a congratulations as well. Oh, that is... well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but thank that you. does not matter. You still did it. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. Well, right. we have, um, you know, we have uh, people all across CSU doing things like that, too. So it's yeah. not, it's not abnormal, true. but it, um, it was a busy time. I could imagine. Yeah. <laughs> It's impressive. Yeah. Goodness. And I think you're absolutely right. It's not uncommon. Yeah. <clears throat> so I think, again, that the voice of support, you know, even if there's a whisper of it here for yeah. our, our many millions of listeners, we decided we're going to claim it in advance. Mm -hmm. Yes. One of these days we're going to be there. So. Speaking to existence. Yeah. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> there you go. So, Paula, talk to me a little bit about family. So you've, mm -hmm. you've spoken to this unbelievable moment when you're working and pursuing a Ph.D. and. Mm -hmm. Eight months pregnant with your first child. Talk to me a little bit about uh, Paula outside of the campus. Yeah, I think um, now, you know, I'm a uh, single mom, two kids, uh, kindergarten and fifth grade. My goodness. And they are just so much fun. And uh, we love just our adventures together. Um, I try to do things that scare me a little. So um, my, <laughs> <laughs> my pandemic survival mood was to move was to buy a camper mm. and learn how to um, tow and operate the camper and get us places. So we camp a lot during the summers Good in our little, you. yeah, we have a little um, A-frame pop-up camper. So love that. And uh, yeah, just, they, they really are at an age now where they're so much fun. Yeah. And um, yeah, my older one, her own interests and, and things are starting to emerge. So yeah, it's just... It's really great. You know, pandemic parenting is not for the faint-hearted, as I'm sure everybody out there can recognize. And I think um, it's definitely made me a better professor to kind of think about my students as entire people, not just people who are, you know, in the classroom and nothing else. That's such an important point. Yeah. Everybody has so much going on outside of the classroom and, and so many challenges they're facing right now. And, you know, that's always been true, but maybe... A silver lining of COVID can be that we remember that about each other. And Amen. Yeah. Well I do think like CSU's done as good of a job as, as they can do trying to recognize what everybody has going on outside. Sure. Um, yeah. but I, I guess there's always more we can do, but I think um, hearing from people at other universities 
I think we're doing pretty well, and I know in the social work department we're really um, focused on figuring out more ways that we can support our students and uh, everything that they're facing right now. I have to ask how your professional experience and your academic training informed your approach to navigating this last couple of years. Mm. It's, from what I've heard, you strike me as being way mm. better equipped than I was <laughs> at this. You know, it's funny. I mean, one of the areas of research that I've been engaged in for a long time with my colleague Tara Powell at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign has been um, responding to disasters and providing organizational and community-level interventions to build resilience um, in all the like helping professions where people have been providing help while experiencing all the impacts of a disaster. Sure. So we first started um, developing this work after Hurricane Sandy in New York and then um, continued after several um, floods and smaller disasters across um, the Southern US. Um, we made some very good friends in Louisiana. And then after Hurricanes Harvey and Maria, an intervention we developed was delivered by a team in AmeriCares to over 4,000 people who had experienced disasters. And so through that work, I learned a lot about resilience and coping, which is really the focus of our intervention and um, social cohesion. So I think... I think the benefit of that is like I recognize what resilience can look like, what coping strategies can be effective, and how important it is to maintain uh, social relationships in times of difficulty. But it's a little bit like a mechanic who is really bad at working on their own car, you know, mm -hmm. or um, yeah, a carpenter who always has projects at home but never gets them done, you know. Um, so. Yeah, I wouldn't say that made me immune to the impacts of the pandemic. And certainly as a single parent, the overlap of the year of, you know, trying to homeschool my kiddos, being up for tenure, <laughs> trying to teach from home, trying to support students who had all these things going on, too. Sure. Um, yeah, it was it was a lot. But, uh, you know, none of us were alone in that. It was kind of a lot for everyone, I think. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I giggled a little uh, getting ready for this because um, I knew one of the things you might ask was, you know, five years from now, how's your research impacting people's lives? And I, I laughed about how, you know, three years ago, I just would have answered that question and been like, oh, here's what I'll be doing in five years. And I would have been very certain about um, my research trajectory or, or how it might be impacting people's lives. And now I think, huh. I don't know. <laughs> hmm. You know, if there's anything we've learned, it's like um, we can't predict things as well as we thought we could. Yeah, yeah. humility has been engendered by this experience. I yeah. Think. Yes. Thanks, COVID. <laughs> 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 so I want to talk about the transition here. Mm -hmm. How did we get lucky enough to, to land you here? Oh, my gosh. I got so lucky. So I've just been really fortunate. So as I finished my Ph.D., I had a young kiddo, a two-year-old, and a uh, professor on my committee, David Springer, who's now the head of um, the RGK Center at the LBG School of Public Affairs, had just started a partnership with the Austin Police Department uh, to work on a uh, community-engaged uh, intervention uh, with community police officers who would be on a, um, a walking beat. And essentially, the police officers would serve 
sort of like social workers and just solving problems in the community. Uh, I think the only arrest they made during the three-year project was um, someone was breaking into their police car. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they really didn't have a choice. Sure. But uh, they were really trying to uh, partner with the Renberg area of Austin, which is a, a about a four-square-mile area with, um, I think, 60 different languages spoken. It was a refugee resettlement site. Wow. And uh, the police department had received funding from the Obama administration to look at innovative ways to reduce crime through community building. So the walking beat police officers were just spending a lot of time engaging in the community. Uh, there were community meetings, all those kinds of things. And, and I took on the role of coordinating the evaluation and the kind of technical assistance from the university. And that was a postdoc that I was awarded for three years. Mm-hmm. And a year into the postdoc, I saw the position at Colorado State, and this was one of the few places that um, has a dual degree MPH MSW program. So I thought, you know, this is one of the few places that might hire me in a school of social work, given that I don't have a master's degree in social work, which is the practice degree, and is um, required by many uh, social work schools to be on their faculty. In fact, we require it for a lot of positions. So I just applied so that I could get some practice on the job market. Um, it was pretty low low pressure because I, I wasn't at the end of my postdoc yet. I could stay a little longer. And I thought, you know, best case scenario, I'll get a trip to Fort Collins, which is such a cool place. Um, worst case scenario, you know, I just keep working in my postdoc. Sure. But this was the uh, only application that I submitted. And um, they brought me to campus to interview, and I just completely fell in love with it and yeah I was just lucky enough to to get a job offer so then um, we packed our bags and came to Fort Collins but it almost seemed too good to be true and uh, yeah I felt really fortunate about that I don't know many people who just interview at one place and Indeed. and get to go yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. You know, there's two themes I'm hearing from you that I really they moved me. One one is the spirit of appreciation. Yeah, mm-hmm. this Thanksgiving. It, it, the, almost every question I ask, you start with that, and I think that is really cool. So, mm-hmm. Oh, thanks. Well, I do feel like I've been very, very fortunate. Yeah, and that's, that's the other half of this. You, you, you have been, but I think, you know, a lot of that is tethered to grit and imagination and hard mm-hmm. work, and I don't think these things just dropped out of the sky into your lap. Uh, you... you your pathway is interesting to me. It, mm-hmm. It's multi-layered, right? And so good for you and good for us. Let me just say that. But I, I really appreciate both of those, this spirit of Thanksgiving and a, a spirit of, you know, I've been fortunate, I've been blessed, whatever kind of language we want to use for that. It's I think it's a healthy approach to mm-hmm. life. So yeah. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mean, I did have, you know, really hardworking parents and grandparents and, um, I do try to be guided by this idea of being a good ancestor. Mm-hmm. So both being a, a good ancestor and a tribute to uh, the generations of my family that have come before me and then trying to be a, a good ancestor for my kids and grandkids and their kids. Here, here. Yeah. Yes. Good for you. So when was it that we landed you to, to Fort Collins? How long have you been here? So I've been here um, seven years now. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. And as we were talking before we went on the air, that you're in the midst of a transition, right, mm-hmm. from a, a traditional maybe faculty appointment to one that has some more administrative responsibilities. And for what it's worth, by the way, I can relate to that. Yeah. The last couple of years. So. Yeah. Well, I do. Um, 
I'm glad I get to keep uh, being a researcher because I really do love it. But uh, we have a, a super cool program in the School of Social Work called the uh, Center for Lifelong Learning Outreach and Education, and it's CHLOE for short. So uh, the mission of CHLOE is really to uh, embrace that land-grant university uh, tripart mission. And CHLOE was actually established to meet the continuing education needs of extension agents. So what from the social sciences did extension agents need to learn? Yeah. In the years that Chloe's been in place, it's since kind of uh, morphed and changed. And now um, Chloe offers, you know, five different uh, certificate programs that people can earn master's level certificates in. And those are really in areas that that are priority areas for the state. So we have a certificate in advanced behavioral health, um, nonprofit management, school social work. Uh, we've really got some, you know, compelling areas. And then we're working now to expand and offer uh, continuing education opportunities that, you know, I really hope will uh, reduce the barrier to accessing CSU. So I just want everybody to have access to a lot of the knowledge and information that comes out of this place. You're, you know, Matt, from like interviewing so many uh, folks and being the the Dean for Research, that there's so much compelling work in so many different areas coming out of our college. And uh, I would love for, you know, high school teachers to have access to that and uh, moms and dads to have access to that and high school seniors to to better understand who they're going to be interacting with. You know, all the social science prof uh, professionals who are out there in the helping professions just providing new strategies, uh, information, things that they can use to do their jobs even better. Um, they're already amazing, but what other uh, kinds of expertise could we share uh, that would support them more? And then um, how can we design our programs to meet their needs? So I hope there'll be a feedback loop, too, with um, what they can teach us, you know, where to focus and um, what we should be working on, where we're missing the boat. Um, and what we can do better to provide to our communities across the state. That's fantastic. Yeah. I have to ask you a question that's, that's a hard one to answer because mm. I think we all know that there is no typical day in the mm -hmm. life of a, an academic. But if you were to describe to our listeners, you know, on any given day, mm. this is what I might find myself doing. Yeah. Gosh, you know, I've been trying to... Um, sit with the different percentages that I'm supposed to be aligned oh, with. Right. You know, I don't I don't know if people outside the academy know this, but, you know, any semester you might have 20% uh, of your time set aside for teaching and 40% for service and 50% uh, for research or something like that. Well, right now my percentages are way off from what they've ever been before. <laughs> um so uh, I'm kind of getting used to teaching a little bit less, kind of putting some boundaries around the research rather than, than being um, a researcher all the time. And then, uh, you know, lots and lots of working on Chloe, strategic planning. I'm writing a business plan, which is really fun. I've never oh, written a business plan before. So I've been consulting with the business school, yeah. <laughs> asking some business students yeah. to help me. Um, so that, that is one really fun thing about the academy is like how varied your job is, the interesting conversations you might have day to day. So I'm currently like adjusting how I might spend a regular day, but you know, I, I might work on a research project, um, for some period of time or, you know, work on writing a paper for some period of time. I might uh, consult with some students. I might work on some, uh, continuing ed 
applications. These are all just things I've done this week. So <laughs> just kind of pulling from that list. But uh, yeah, it's it's really varied. And I do love that. And it also um, can be a challenge, you know, to um, track things across many different projects. Mm-hmm. So that's a skill I'm working on. Good. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I have not mastered it in any way, shape, or form. That's for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. So you've hinted at this, but I want you to talk a little bit about what you like the best about working in this College of Health and Human Sciences. Mm-hmm. Our college is really cool. You know, I love that the the mission of our college is really just aligned with my personal mission of, I mean, it sounds cliched, I guess, but we all just want to make the world a better place mm-hmm. through our different um gifts and abilities and areas of focus. So it's really easy to align with the mission of the college. I think one thing I do really appreciate is that I think the college is authentically trying to make progress on our diversity, equity, inclusion, and social justice goals. I'm I'm getting to co-chair the Committee on Social Justice uh, at the School of Social Work with uh, my colleague Tiffany Jones. And we're working really hard right now on an in-depth um, needs assessment of our school and where we are, where we need to make progress. And students are super involved in it. The administration's very supportive of it, all the way up to the dean. And I really see like that authentic support for those goals kind of um, rolling out across the college, which I think is great. I don't, I don't think that's the case at every university in the country. So I feel fortunate that we're in a place that really is working on that. And just. You know, everybody is really very supportive and collaborative in our college. I've had some really great experiences with people from uh, other departments. I, you know, love serving on committees with people from other departments. I get to be on a podcast with people from other departments. There's (laughs) just all kinds of cool opportunities that having such a varied um, college brings. And like a lot of the things people are working on really are related, like the way buildings are designed. Um, you know, often that has been an equity and access issue for people with uh, disabilities or people with sensory differences. And like our construction management department really does, you know, attend to those things. I know a colleague in design and merchandising is looking at, you know, the environmental impacts and benefits of using hemp to make clothing rather than other things. And that is an environmental justice issue. Um, you know, so there's just so much overlap and and it, it does seem like we're very different, but really the overarching goal and interweaving of it all is really there and kind of that mission of making the world a better place. Yeah. <laughs> if that sounds silly, I don't know, but um, I do love that about the college. Great. Mm-hmm. The next layer up, of course, is CSU. And mm-hmm. You've already touched on the land grant mission piece, but I wonder if I could ask you to unpack that a little bit more. When you think about yeah. opportunities to work in the land grant, mm-hmm. what does that mean? The land grant mission of CSU to me is really like our beating heart and soul. Um, Yeah, I love, uh, you know, extension, of course, is one part of that. And I love working with our colleagues and extension and engagement on um, whatever I can work with them on. They're they're really great to partner with. I've gotten to interview extension agents uh, through a couple of different research studies. And I'm just so impressed with, you know, what they do every day, how many different um, areas of practice they're engaged in. They're just, their skill sets and dedication to their work is, I mean, just so admirable and impressive. And the work like our Office of Engagement is doing with um, really trying to teach people through the Family Leadership Training Institute and, and other 
interventions that they're engaged in, how to um, elevate voices within a community, really attend to what the community members are saying that they need rather than imposing agendas on communities. Yeah, it's, it, it's just such a cool time to be at CSU for those kinds of things. And then our students are amazing, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, students have really dug in and engaged and are really um, guiding a lot of what's happening in the School of Social Work. I don't know what it's like in the other schools, but um, we are just really fortunate to have the kinds of students that we have. Um, I do love the way that we uh, support first-gen students and students who are veterans and students who are working parents. And yeah, all those things I think are, they're part of our land-grant mission, but they're also things I think we do really well. Awesome. Yeah, we still have a lot of work to do. I mean, <laughs> that much is is uh, true everywhere, but I think we're doing our best to do the work. And Miles to go before we sleep, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, Paula, thanks a ton for coming yeah, and sharing with us. this was so fun. This was so easy. It Great. is fun. <laughs> and, and it's turned out to be easy because I think yeah. we, we just are hanging out and having a conversation. Another great interview is in the books. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health and Human Science Matters. Be sure to check out the rest of season two, as well as season one. If you want to learn more about the college, go to www.chhs.colostate.edu.